It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode 33 in the series that we've been cobbling together over these past months called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. Uh, In this series, we're covering a zone of an American history from 1914 to 1974. And the reason that I sort of hollowed out this little portion and chose it is from World War I to what we're calling Watergate uh, in 1974. And it's defining uh, to the character, to the disposition, to the current countenance of our country. And so, so much of what defines our country today is being... Uh, defined in and through this time period. Uh, And so black and white, not just meaning racial, but also photography, television, movies, they're all black and white in this period of time, even though color has come about. uh, And in the 60s, you'd think we would have uh, switched it all over, but it takes a while for our country to get around to things. And so you're going to start seeing color, like photography and photojournalism is still going to be black and white up through Watergate. And so most of our cultural memory of this time, if not all of it, is black and white, which is just a unique thing to think of our memories being in black and white, just because that's the way we've seen uh, the pictures. That's the way we've seen Like when you think of World War I, you think black and white. When you think World War II, you think black and white. And it's just an odd uh, thing. Until you see a movie version of it, it sort of messes with my, my imagery that I'm trying to create here. But it's also a season of great dogmatism and extremities. And so you're going to see extreme rift between right and left uh, political persuasions. You're going to see a great hostility uh, within our country, ideologically. You're going to see a very sharp dogmatism over the issues of communism and the concern over the invasion of this atheistic uh, model of government making its way into our Christian culture. And you're going to see something known as the Cold War, which is right where we're at uh, now in the storyline, is following World War II, you're going to have a rift with our ally, which was the Soviet Union. They were an ally, if you can imagine that, uh, in World War II. And one of the reasons we were able to put down Hitler was because of the Soviet Union. And yet the Soviet Union then is going to come into Eastern Europe to push Hitler out And they had made an agreement. They'd made it very clear. They're not looking for territory. They're not looking for an expansion. And then when World War II was over, they didn't leave. And this is going to create a great consternation because it's not just that they didn't leave Eastern Europe and they settled in there and and it it came under their boot, but then they're going to move into other parts of the world, China and North Korea and ultimately Vietnam. And so all of that storyline is happening right now in America. And this uh, particular message, which is, there's certain things about this that I think are really neat. And one is that it's episode 33. First of all, I like numbers, right? So 33 is always, and I, I don't know if it's just me, but for me, there's certain numbers that just equate to something instantaneously. And 33 is the year of Christ's death in, in my mind. And so it's always like the year of the man's sacrifice, right? Which is sort of cool in how that plays into this particular message. And it's not that I strategized it, it's just sort of how it worked. And I, I thought that, that was sort of a wink from heaven. But this one is the only message I think in the entire series so far that I've actually named after the name historically that we have, which is the Cuban Missile Crisis. I had some really cool names that I was thinking of using. But I figured I would just be plain spoken in this. This is the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is arguably the most desperate, fearful event in all of American history. Which, that's saying a lot, considering we've had a lot of very, very fearful events in American history. But this, is, this probably ranks at the top of my list in observing American history. It is such a, an extremity point for our country where most people felt like it was the end of their life. 
and they're going through all of that existential crisis of like, who am I? What did I live for? I mean, their, their life is passing before, you know, what, what have I done to, you know, if I die today? I mean, it's very interesting. An entire nation is facing this. And it wasn't just our nation, it was the world. It, it really did seem like it was the end of the world. October, 1962. So I'm saying the closest America ever came to nuclear war. Now, there are some other stories that I could give which are rather profound to show how nuclear war could have started in other situations, but no one knew about it. In this situation, everyone is wide awake and very aware. There's other situations where we could have entered into a nuclear war, but we didn't, and they're really interesting stories, but no one knew about it. So as a result, you never stressed about it. You slept well that night. This is one of those situations where no one's sleeping well that night. So October 14th, 1962, it's a thir- this is gonna be a 13-year process, 13-day process. So Bobby Kennedy is going to write a memoir of this event, and he's going to be assassinated before it is published. And so they're going to uh, publish it after he is dead, but it's called 13 Days. And so it's these 13 days that he is writing about, which is an interesting study in and of itself to be in the Oval Office and actually in the discussions. They're going to record everything that was said in these discussions as these leaders, this, it's called the uh, XCOM or the executive uh, committee that are going to come together and literally be working through the data to come to a solution of what they should do because the world is hanging in the balance. And of course, you don't understand why it's hanging in the balance yet, but you know, I'm just saying, this is pretty amazing. So it's gonna start October 14th, 1962 with a very particular event. So 90 miles away, uh, most of us don't think about how close Cuba is to Florida, uh, unless you're from Cuba, uh, and then you're probably very aware uh, of how far it is, but it's very close. 90 miles is actually not that far. And 90 miles from Florida is a country called Cuba, and this country is an embattled country. It is currently at this time led by Fidel Castro. I don't know if you've heard that name before. And the communists are in cahoots with Fidel Castro, who is very anti-American. He's not a fan uh, of what we're doing here, and he's sort of an anti-imperialist. So he's very susceptible to the communist idea. He just wants to put down nations like America. He's 90 miles away, and they're going to start carting in nuclear weapons and aim them straight at the United States. So there's a clear and present danger, and it's spotted in Cuba. So this is, there's a load of maps on this, and this is rather pathetic. Uh, you'd have to recognize the tip of Florida up there, and if you don't, then this is very confusing, but the top of the, the map is gonna have that little edge of Florida, you know, where Miami would be hanging out. And then you're gonna see Cuba right there, and you're gonna see all the missiles just sort of there. Now, America doesn't realize there are missiles there. October 13th of 1962, we don't know that there's missiles there. We know we have a hostile country in Cuba, and we know we have a problem with Cuba. That's not new. It's just that we didn't know they had nuclear power. Nuclear power is a relatively new thing. America was the only country with it, and then because of some great spy work by the communists, they're going to get this data out and they're going to be able to create nuclear weapons. They're way behind right now, uh, to the point where America has like 25,000 nuclear warheads and you know, Soviet Union has like 600. All you need is one. One is going to do such massive damage, but it's, it's funny, we have this arms race going on. It's like, what do you do with 25,000 of them? And so we're ahead, yes, but now we have some that are literally right by our country. And they're building up, they have smaller ones that can reach most of the country. Like they could blow up uh, at this exact juncture on October 14th when they recognize it, that that could take out Washington, D.C., that could take out Mexico City. That could, I mean, they're already reaching about that far, but they have mid-range that are being set up that are near operational status that could destroy anything in the Western Hemisphere. They could literally obliter- obliterate the whole Western Hemisphere, and this is what we're discovering October 14th, 1962. Now, it's funny. Most of us have grown up in the age of nuclear warfare. I mean, well, most of us, every one of us have, has grown up in that, but we haven't necessarily grown up with the intensity that, we, that they had then, and that 
I had, some of you understand what this was like when you're growing up in the 70s and the 80s, as an outflow of this, we were constantly being taught what was going to happen if, the, if, the, if a nuclear war went off. I don't know how that's helpful to us, uh, but it's like, yeah, everything's gonna be obliterated. There'll be radiation in the air and you know, people, you have to live in bunkers and things like this. Like, okay, I would rather just die in the nuclear <laughs> explosion and not have to deal. That's the way a lot of people are having to process this through. And so a lot of us grew up in this Cold War fear the fear of a nuclear war. And that's, of course, being stimulated in a great uh, way in and through the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the task of leading in the midst of disaster. And that's sort of what my message is today, is I wanna talk about what it's like to lead in the midst of a very difficult time. Because for us, what we're being built to do is to actually lead the world in which we live in and through trial and disaster. It's actually our greatest opportunity. It's the greatest stage that exists for influence is when everyone else is fearful. When everyone else is trembling, it actually is your opportunity as a believer to have a steady mind, to be able to hold yourself together and be marked by peace to help people through it. I've oftentimes said for missions, one of the best missionary opportunities is natural disaster. If there's a natural disaster somewhere in the world, that's actually where we want to be because that's where souls are opened up. You don't notice your need for stability until you are unstable. And in that instability, the Christian is able to deliver clear stability. And that's important for you to recognize is that you're not one that in a time of instability becomes unstable. You're a time in a season of instability that affixes yourself to the rock, which means you're not moving. Everything else could be faltering and falling around you. Like everyone else could be lining up at the gas station to you know, get their gas. And you are not moved the same way. You're at peace, you're at rest, you're confident, God's in control. This is imperative in your development because the first thing you're leading is your own body. And in this body, you need to make choices in a time of trial to be settled and to be rooted in truth and to be calm and marked by peace, the joy of the Lord, thanksgiving. Those things don't go away just because the circumstances around you are chaotic. You are marked by Jesus Christ in this moment. And therefore, after you start leading yourself, if you're married, you can lead your marriage. If you're, you have a family, you can lead your family. If you have a church, you can lead your church. If you have a business, you can lead your business. If you're an influencer in a community, you could lead your community. You have opportunity in those moments to actually influence the world around you. So we're in a situation here where, so I'm saying the task of leading in the midst of disaster. This situation was possibly the most difficult, uh, presented the most difficult decisions that maybe any president has ever had to make. And I've pondered that through. I don't say that lightly because it is, it is a very challenging situation that John F. Kennedy is in. He's a younger president and then we're used to. And so you could sort of think, boy, is this guy gonna fall to pieces? To be honest, I'm very impressed with how John F. Kennedy is going to navigate this. So here's Bobby Kennedy. He's writing this uh, post posthumously. In, it's sort of hard to describe. He wrote this and then was assassinated, and then the book is going to be published. It was not only for Americans that he was concerned. So speaking of John F. Kennedy, or primarily the older generation of any land, the thought that disturbed him the most and that made the prospect of war much more fearful than it would otherwise have been was a specter of the death of the children of this country and all the world. The young people who had no role, who had no say, who knew nothing even of the confrontation, but whose lives would be snuffed out like everyone else's. They would never have a chance to make a decision of, to vote in an election, to run for office, to lead a revolution, to determine their own destinies. Our generation had. But the great tragedy was that if we erred, we erred not only for ourselves, our futures, our hopes, and our country, but for the lives, futures, hopes, and countries of those who had never been given an opportunity to play a role, to vote I, A or not A, to make themselves felt. It's just an interesting human perspective that he's articulating there, that you're, John F. Kennedy is recognizing the weight of what he has to carry. Now, the reason we can't hear from John F. Kennedy on this 
It's interesting because here's Bobby Kennedy who's going to be assassinated. Well, John F. Kennedy was assassinated not much long after this either. And so both of these key leaders in this situation are both gonna be snuffed out. And so to have these unique little things of all the, the discussions being recorded, having the memoirs written down is very interesting to be able to capture this in a bottle. A portrait of Gravitas, John F. Kennedy. I, I don't know about you guys, you know, I've to already told you guys that I really like words, but gravitas, that is one of the coolest words I have ever heard. And I don't know why, it just strikes me, just right, it just hits that center line. It's like, now that's a great word. So listen to John Lewis Gaddis, who's a historian. He's referencing John F. Kennedy. Recent scholarship confirms the portrait of John F. Kennedy sketched by his brother in 13 days. A remarkably cool, thoughtful, non-hysterical, self-possessed leader, aware of the weight of decision, incisive in his questions, firm in his judgment, always in charge, steering his advisors perseveringly in the direction he wanted to go. And it is a, it's a very rare scene to be able to see a leader in a time of such great weight, such great disaster, such great trauma, to be able to navigate through with calm as John F. Kennedy is going to do in this situation. The marvel of gravitas amidst the desperate moments. The human soul must applaud. When you see the marvel of gravitas, because that's what it is, it's a marvel. It is a marvel when someone is held together and is calm and is marked by peace, it is marked by clarity, and is able to lead a decision-making process without falling to pieces. Because if any of you have ever been in a leadership position and you have intensity coming, you can literally feel your hair turning gray. It is a strain upon the physical body unlike anything else. Because you feel the weight of your decisions and you feel like if you make them wrong, it's going to affect so many. And there is a real crushing weight. And of course, I am setting you guys up to see the cross. I'm setting you up to see the gravitas of a capital G version. And it isn't John F. Kennedy, by the way. However, John F. Kennedy is going to show something in a human sense which is rather profound because, and I don't have another word for it other than the, the human soul must applaud. It's that impressive. It's just like, well done. Whatever that was, that's, that's amazing. Because when we see someone rise up in the midst of that sort of weight, it really does impress us as humans because we know how hard that is. So I'm going to do a unique definition of gravitas. Gravitas I don't actually like any definition that I get. And that's funny because it's like, who are you, Eric, to say that you don't like a definition? It's just like, I, I don't know how to describe it, but this is a word that typically translates as seriousness. I'm like, no, 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 no. That doesn't say it because it is a description of great leadership in a time of trial. And it's sort of like, I think what seriousness is supposed to dictate is, okay, they don't look at it with a fool's mentality. They look at it with a certain wise circumspection. Okay, great. However, that doesn't quite say it. So here's my way of saying it. When you have gravitas, you're bigger than the trial. You're grander than the difficulty. You're taller than the task. You grow like 10 feet. And if you've ever seen great leaders, like in war, you could have someone who knows a lot about war, but then they get into war and they shrink 10 feet. And because they're really good as professors of war does not make them great in the implementation of war when bullets start flying. And there's other people that are not that big when it comes to their intellect. They don't seem that smart. But when bullets start flying, they grow 10 feet taller and they take the command. They're like ready to sp spend their life. They're ready to lead people into battle. Bullets are whizzing and they don't care. And you say, what is that? And we'd say, that's gravitas right there. It's steadiness, calmness of mind. It's the character swelling up within someone in the moment it's most needed, right? It's like you're built for this moment, gravitas. So another way of saying that, that I've used as a term throughout Ellerslie history is being presidential. And being, being presidential, I'll describe it in just a second, but it's rising up to take the onus of responsibility. Because technically, as a leader, you know you have responsibility, but when it really gets difficult and the one that has to carry that responsibility, like imagine some gunman comes into this room and says, who's in charge here? 
Well, and the guy has his gun, he shoots it up into the ceiling, you know, and we have some drywall coming down from the ceiling. Well, the leader really doesn't want to have to raise his hand and say, I am, because you get the idea that that bullet is next coming into you, right? And so gravitas or being presidential is I am. It's bold. It moves forward and says, I'll take my position even though I know what comes with it. And it's hard being the leader in those situations. I've oftentimes said, you know, when men talk about being the head of the home, you know, and they quote scriptures to their wives about the fact that, you know, you need to submit to me, I'm the head. I said, well, you do need to realize that the head is now responsible to be the head, which means it takes the responsibility in every situation. It is responsible for everything that is going on. So if something needs to be blamed, it's going to be the head. The head is responsible for that. Hey, why did this go around? No, the head, we look to the head. The head has to raise his hand and go, yep, that's on me. So if something needs to be corrected, it starts with the head. And so you really want to say you're the head? Then behave as the head. So don't just start using your terminology of, hey, I'm head of the home, just so you can get your wife to do what you want. You actually need to take responsibility and the onus to say, okay, if I'm the head, that means this is on me. That means I need to get uh, dirt underneath my fingernails. I need to take responsibility. If something goes wrong, it's my fault. I own that. And that's a whole different way of looking at it. And that's the concept of being presidential. I still remember being in Orlando, Florida, and my moment of being presidential with this ministry. And we hadn't had our first semester yet, but we had a crisis in our, in our midst. And it was a very, very challenging situation. And oh, I knew, I, wanted, I was sort of looking around, figuring out who else could do this for me. It's like, is there someone else that could do this? Someone really strong. Someone that you know, has this sort of courage and boldness that would match the situation. And I realized that there is me. I'm the one that's supposed to do the hard thing in this situation. It's actually my responsibility. Am I the leader of this or not? Well, I am, but I, you know, I don't know that I really want to be right now. Usually the leader doesn't want to be the leader when it really is crushing. But the leader is the leader in that moment. And they can't forsake their job at the moment it is most required. And so you may not want to be the leader right now, but you are. So be the leader. And that's the concept of being presidential. It's like, Mr. President, uh, the country needs to hear from you. They need a calm, steady voice. They need to know that everything is going to be okay. And the president might not feel like everything's going to be okay. However, he needs to exude something that brings peace to his country. Same thing a father has to do. A father has to be the confidence for his children. Bombs could be going off outside, and the father could look at his children and say, we're safe. God protects our home. Guys, you can go to sleep tonight and rest safely. You see, being presidential means to take the onus of responsibility and to take the lead in showing the peace, the joy, the love of Jesus in every situation. To show that God is in control. If God's in control, prove it, O leader. Prove it, O man of God, O woman of God. Show it in and through your life right now. King David says to his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28, 20, be strong and of good courage and do it. Isn't that an interesting statement? And do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Now it's interesting because you have this commission which is no small commission. Those are the same words that uh, Moses is going to speak to Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. That's the ancient war cry of the Jews right there. That is exactly what Paul is going to say in the New Testament when he says, Endridzomai, or quit you like men, be strong. Same words. And he's going to be commissioning his son to rise up and to do a very difficult task to build the house of the Lord. And listen to this, be strong and of good courage and do it. You see, that, that, that last little phrase there is so interesting to me because this is what I feel in those moments where I know that I'm the one that's supposed to lead. I, I don't wanna be the one that needs to lead. 
emotionally, humanly speaking, I want out. I, I, who, how did I get into this situation in the first place? Why do I have to be the one? Instead, I want to hear these, these words. Be strong and of good courage, Eric. Do it. It's that simple. Just do it right now. Don't think about it. Do it. You're the one assigned. The grace is going to be there. Do it. Do not fear. Do it. You see, there's an action in your soul that if you pause and if you consider, you may never do it. But if you just move in agreement with your position, you've been anointed to lead. You will be given everything you need to lead. Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to be crushed by a weight weight of sin that is coming down, a weight of responsibility, a weight of a commission that is bigger than any man can carry. And he is going to request it to pass. And yet it's not his will, but God's will that he submits to. And he does it. He moves forward and does something that is so inexplicable for a human to do, that he is going to carry a weight that no man should be able to carry, and he is going to carry it for us. And that is a leader. And in your situations, I can't define what they are now or what they will be in the future, but I guarantee you, your humanity will want to squirm its way out. But you need to know that you've been given an assignment and you've been given grace that is commensurate with that assignment. You will be able to carry precisely what you have been called to carry. Your job is to do it. Don't think about it. Don't squabble with the Spirit of God. Do it. Just start moving. You're going to see the grace of God unfold in your life. So growing 10 feet taller in a crisis, that is precisely what John F. Kennedy is going to do. Now, you may not agree with John F. Kennedy's politics, but the way he is going to lead our country in and through the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have to give a head nod to it. You have to sort of just go, you know what? Well done. Wow. Archibald Primrose, the Earl of Rosebery, isn't that a great name? Look at, look at that name, Archibald Primrose, and then he's the Earl of Rosebery. I mean, that is about as poetic of an existence as I've ever heard. But he is going to give a, a speech at the, oh, what was it? It was like the 500-year anniversary of William Wallace's win over the, at the Battle of Stirling. And so it's this a moment in, in English history and Scottish history where they're going to come together and they're going to remember William Wallace. And this is part of his speech. It's a great speech, guys. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and outcome of the storm. Hey, Andrew, are we going to be set up? I do have an audio uh, track in this. Are we going to be set up to have that go into the speakers? I'll at least give him a little advance notice. Okay, he's squirming around trying to figure that one out too. All right, guys, so uh, look at this just short list, okay? David at the camp in Elah. Remember where Elah is, the Valley of Elah? That's where Goliath is boasting. This is when this man, this little boy, is going to grow 10 feet taller, he is going to take on a role that is bigger than life, and he's going to end up leading his nation, starting right here. This young boy is built for battle, but he needs to step up and do it. The very one who's commanding Solomon to step up and do it, he stepped up and did it in his own life. Moses at the sea's edge, defining moment, guys, in this man's life, where he has to make a decision. He has an entire nation that's been set free from the Egyptians, but they're backed up to a Red Sea. Mountains on both sides, the most powerful military in the world coming, and they're angry. And you got nowhere to go, guys. How are you going to handle the moment? And he is going to grow 10 feet taller in that moment. And he's going to trust his God, even when his own people are picking up stones to, to stone him because he brought them into this situation. He is going to trust that God has brought them right here and he has a solution. That's amazing. Phineas at the mocking moment, when you're gonna see him pick up his javelin and silence that which is mocking the law of God in his land. Mattathias, who's, uh, this is in the Maccabees, uh, is at the profaned altar and he's gonna take down 
the, the Jewish man who's going to sacrifice a pig on Jehovah's altar. And it's being done purposely to try and Hellenize the Jews and to profane the Jewish uh, sacrifice. And so Mattathias is going to kill the Jew in front of the Greeks and they're gonna have to go into hiding. It's going to lead to the Maccabean uh, revolt. Uh, Wallace at Roslyn, great story, where he is going to need to take a stand, but in so doing, he needs to risk his own life because the elders of Scotland are actually looking for him to kill him and to turn him over to King Edward. And so even those of Scotland have betrayed Wallace. So he is gonna come back in, uh, in hiding, like in an outfit where no one knows that it's him and he's gonna fight on behalf of Scotland, but Scotland needs a leader and they need him now. And the only man that Scotland will follow is William Wallace and he knows it. So he goes up to the top of a promontory, a big rock, tears off his helmet and shouts to the Scots to follow him, knowing that it's gonna cost him his life in so doing because he's exposing where he is, his location. But the Scots are gonna win that battle because of Wallace's leadership. Churchill in the darkest hour, he's going to be given the assignment to be prime minister of England in the worst possible moment in history. And that's arguable. May 13th of 1940 is literally that one time in history you would never wanna be able to get, take the lead of a, of a nation, especially England because it's their darkest hour. Their, their, their military is stuck over in France, surrounded in a town called Dunkirk, and they can't get them out. 70% of their military strengths in one town, all of their military strength, all of their, their military armaments are over there. And if they lose them, they have nothing, their entire shores, they're gonna be invaded, and they have no defenses against the Nazis. And this is when Churchill inherits the leadership, and that man is gonna grow 10 feet taller when he does. I mean, it is one of the most inspiring stories you could ever read is just Winston Churchill taking the leadership of a country that is dying. Eisenhower on D-Day, wow. Guys, when you, you see leadership, I mean, you have, this is one of the most crushing challenges that I've ever studied, and that is the decision of when to invade. I know that doesn't sound like much, but they had just a little narrow window and the meteorologists, they have to cross the English Channel, which is the most unpredictable cross, and they could lose the battle just by sinking in the English Channel on the way across. And the meteorologists of Great Britain are giving them one reading, and the meteorologists of America are giving a different reading. And he has to make a choice. He's risking everything, because if the Allies do not make this cross and they do not win at Normandy, there could be millions more deaths because it'll be a stalemate for, it could be decades. This is their one opportunity they've prepared for two and a half years and everyone looks at Eisenhower. What are we supposed to do? Oh, wow. And he's going to make a decision that changes history. Okay, I'm not even teaching that right now. And some of you are like, what? Uh, that one's called Being Presidential in My World War II Series. Okay, you guys can look into that. It's a good one. Kennedy in October of 62. That's where we're at. That's the story I'm talking about today. The President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, that's his official presidential photo. Don't you wonder how they come up with an official presidential photo? He's going through a whole pile of his like, yeah, I like that one. The Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev. Oh, look at that guy. Uh, that's intense. So Stalin has passed on, now we have Nikita Khrushchev, and these are the two that are embattled in this storyline. Now, Fidel Castro is in the story. However, he's not one of the key decision makers, which is going to make him really mad in the years to come. Uh, this is going to sponsor a whole depth of rage inside of Fidel Castro because Nikita Khrushchev is not going to talk to him throughout this process. So this is called the Cuban Missile Crisis. October 14th, 1962, something specific is going to happen. Major Richard Heiser is in a U-2 spy plane and he's going to fly over Cuba. And so they're taking pictures. It's like 850 or so pictures they're going to take of these installations that Richard uh, Major Heiser is going to see. And he's going to notice that there's an aggressive military buildup in Cuba. So he's gonna bring back these pictures. He doesn't know what they translate into. Now they need these specialists that examine the photography. So October 15, 1962, CIA analysts examine Major Heiser's photographs and they detect nuclear missile sites nearing operational status. They can see that there's small range uh, short range missiles already there aimed at America. 
And they're also gonna recognize that they're building up medium range, which means if they have medium range, it's like you have long range over in the Soviet Union, but medium range can d devastate anything in the Western Hemisphere. That means everything in the Western Hemisphere is now subject to the fear of these missiles. October 16, 1962, President Kennedy is informed. His team of advisors, known as XCOM, or Executive Community uh, Committee, is invited to the White House. So uh, that's one of, I just love that, that picture. There's something about that picture. You see uh, Kennedy uh, sitting there all calm uh, on one side. You see Bobby with his head is the furthest to the left over here. That's just a very intriguing thing. It's like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall and just sort of watch and listen in that. It's interesting because these things have been recorded, and so we actually have a lot of detail. It's just it's days worth of discussions. It's not the easiest thing to study through or wade through. Bobby Kennedy, and this is going to be written in his 13 days. He was attorney general at the time. And so we argued, and so we disagreed. All dedicated, intelligent men disagreeing and fighting about the future of our country and of mankind. It's that important. No one in America knows yet what's going on. These guys know. And they're trying to figure out what they do in response. And so what do we do? Because no matter what we do, we create a potential problem. And the hazards that can be created are very, very real right now. So they're going to come up with six options. So these are as determined by Kennedy's executive committee. Option number one, do nothing. American vulnerability to Soviet missiles was not new. We've had missiles aimed at us for a long time. What if we do nothing? Okay, that, by the way, no one voted for that, uh, but that is an option, so they're putting it on the table. Option number two, diplomacy. Use diplomatic pressure to get the Soviet Union to remove the missiles. Option number three, secret approach. Offer Castro the choice of splitting with the Soviets or being invaded. Option number four, invasion. Full force invasion of Cuba and overthrow of Castro. Option number five, airstrike. Use the U.S. Air Force to attack all known missile sites. And option number six, blockade. Use the U.S. Navy to block any missiles from arriving in Cuba. So as they are making this system operational, they're still carting in goods, military goods. And so a blockade would be to surround that. Now, one of the things they're going to discover, their legal team is going to be there, and they say, well, in the official terminology of war, a blockade is an action of war. So you would be declaring war on the Soviet Union if you form a blockade. History.com. The Joint Chiefs of Staff unanimously agreed that a full-scale attack and invasion was the only solution. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff are going to be the heads of the military. And they're going to be unanimously say, we have to full-scale go in and, and take out Cuba. They believe that the Soviets would not attempt to stop the U.S. from conquering Cuba. President Kennedy, and this is what he's going to say to his XCOM, his executive committee. They, no more than we, can let these things go by without doing something. They can't, after all their statements, permit us to take out their missiles, kill a lot of Russians, and then do nothing. If they don't take action in Cuba, they certainly will in Berlin. So Berlin is going to be uh, the issues of East-West Germany, if you remember the wall. And so they know that that's where the penalty is going to come. Even if they don't attack Cuba, they're going to destroy uh, Western Germany. And so Kennedy is saying, look, we can't, if we do something, there's going to be retaliation somewhere. And that's going to be on my head. I need to make sure that the tactic we use is going to be the best one. Guys, you just want war. And he had just gone through what's called the Bay of Pigs. Now, I'm not teaching on that. But it was what the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they came and said, you have to do this. And so he did, and it was an absolute disaster. So Kennedy is already now, remember we talk about fact, faith, and experience. His experience <laughs> is don't trust the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He doesn't really, he just feels like they just want war no matter what. He doesn't want war. That's actually one of the things I really like about him. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a nice feature, guys. President Kennedy, and this is going to be written to the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. The one thing that has concerned me has been the possibility that your government would not correctly understand the will and determination of the United States in any given situation, since I have not assumed that you or any other sane man would, in this nuclear age, deliberately plunge the world into war, which it is crystal clear no country could win and which could only result in catastrophic consequences to the whole world, including the aggressor. 
So instead of doing a blockade, they're going to do something known as a quarantine. And they're going to purposely use that word because that's not a word that indicates war. So they are going to quarantine the island of Cuba, not blockade it, just so you know. It's, this is not a blockade, this is a quarantine. So October 22nd, 1962, the president addresses the nation. Are we ready for the audio? Okay, so I'm gonna actually give a portion. It's a 17 minute speech, and I wish I could just do the whole speech, guys, but it would be a long speech. I'm gonna give about four or five minutes of the speech, and just so we can hear his voice, and hear what America was hearing. It's just the first like four minutes or so. The president's television address to the nation on the Cuban situation. From the president's office in the White House, October 22nd, 1962. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, Unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles, capable of traveling more than twice as far, and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers, capable of carrying nuclear weapons, are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range, and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas in flagrant and deliberate defiance of the Rio Pact of 1947 the traditions of this nation and hemisphere, the joint resolution of the 87th Congress, the Charter of the United Nations, and my own public warnings to the Soviets on September 4th and 13th. This action also contradicts the repeated assurances of Soviet spokesmen, both publicly and privately delivered, that the arms built up in Cuba would retain its original defensive character and that the Soviet Union had no need or desire to station strategic missiles on the territory of any other nation. The size of this undertaking makes clear that it has been planned for some months. Yet only last month, month, after I had made clear the distinction between any introduction of ground-to-ground -ground missiles and the existence of defensive anti-aircraft missiles, the Soviet government publicly stated on September 11th that, and I quote, the armaments and military equipment sent to Cuba are designed exclusively for defensive purposes, unquote. That there is, and I quote the Soviet government, there is no need for the Soviet government to shift its weapons for a retaliatory blow to any other country, for instance, Cuba, unquote. And that, and I quote the government, the Soviet Union has so powerful rockets to carry these nuclear warheads that there is no need to search for sites 
for them beyond the boundaries of the Soviet Union, unquote. That statement was false. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, that Soviet assistance to Cuba, and I quote, pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba, unquote. So what you see, and I wish I could play the whole thing. Technically, it gets better. It's just, I don't know what portion I'm supposed to give you. The, the entire nation is glued to this. Everyone is listening. And everyone is getting this revelation that Cuba is armed or close to operational to actually destroy America. And if we have a misstep in this, in the relations with the Soviet Union, then we will have to either send off our uh, nuclear warheads to silence them, or they'll send them our way to silence us. It was a very, very delicate uh, tightrope walk. October 23rd, 1962, so this is the day after his speech, the president and the Soviet premier are going to exchange unpleasantries. That's an understatement for what it was like. Here's Nikita Khrushchev to JFK. The weapons are intended solely for defensive purposes. That was the exact line that they've been saying over and over and over again. This is all for defensive purposes. And uh, so then President Kennedy to the Soviet premier, you started the crisis by secretly sending missiles to Cuba. President Kennedy is going to make the statement, we will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the costs of a worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. But neither shall we shrink from that risk any time it must be faced. This is the challenge, is both countries have to make it very clear that they're ready to push the button. If one country begins to cow and to get mushy, the other country will immediately begin to dominate the discussion. So this is the art of brinkmanship, of coming to the edge of a cliff. I gave a message called the game of chicken, uh, and where two cars are, are aimed towards each other, and it's the first one to, to veer off that's the chicken. And yet, if neither veers off, guess what? There's destruction. And that's exactly what we're, we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the game of chicken. So this is just something I came across. The Chinese People's Daily, I don't actually know what that is, if that's like the newspaper or some, some type of official uh, media source in China. This is what the declaration that came to America was. 650 million Chinese men and women are standing by the Cuban, Cuban people. It's like, you better watch your step because China has Cuba's back as well. And by the way, we have 650 million of us. It's like, oh... That's encouraging. October 27th, 1962. So we've had, what, five days of jawing back and forth. Everyone in America is just walking down the street feeling like this is their last day. They could just feel it. There was a heaviness in the air. Major Rudy Anderson is going to be shot down while flying his U-2 spy plane over Cuba, inspecting the operational status of the missile sites. So we're going to send a U-2 spy plane up again, and you could say, well, that doesn't sound very smart. We're trying to survey what is going on. We need to have clear information. They're obviously not giving it to us. So Major Anderson is going to be like, I want to go. He's risking his life to do it. He's the one that's willing to do it. And uh, I'll give you a little more of the backstory here. Soviet Lieutenant General Stepan Grechko, uh, with his, I don't know why there's a period in front of the with there, with his commanding general absent, Gretschko gave the implausible order. So this is the quote that we have from history. He's, he knows that uh, Anderson is up there and he's taking pictures. So he says, our guest has been up there for over an hour. He is discovering our positions in depth. Then he's going to give what I'm calling the implausible order because his commanding officer didn't give him permission to do it, but his commanding officer isn't present. So he's going to actually order, destroy target number 33. Now remember how I said 33 is a pretty interesting number here? Because this is episode 33 and the, that was called target number 33. And Gretschko is going to give the order to destroy it. Now, the challenge is this could very easily be declared an act of war. In the circumstances we're dealing with, we have an action to destroy an American plane. And of course, the Soviets could say, what was he doing flying above our territory? 
And the Americans say, what are you shooting them down for? Don't you realize how delicate our talks are? And you're going to literally shoot down one of our, our pilots? History.com says, within hours, word of the shootdown reached the White House cabinet room, which all day long had crackled with tension amid news that the Soviet nuclear missile sites in Cuba were nearly operational. They're almost operational. They're going to be ready to go at any time. And then they shoot down Major Anderson. Paul Nitsky, uh, Nitsi, the Assistant Direct Secretary of Defense, says, they fired the first shot. You can just sort of imagine, if we could get into the emotion, the movie emotion of this. They fired the first shot. That's in other words saying, we have to respond. You don't just sit by and do nothing in these moments. President Kennedy, we are now, entirely, we are now in an entirely new ballgame. In other words, this changes everything. We were already on the brink, and now we have these you know, quotes coming out. I don't know how you're feeling if you feel like we're very stable as a country right now. I mean, this is a nuclear bomb, even just one. We're talking potentially not just hundreds of thousands. If it's a major area, millions. And there's going to be a retaliation no matter what. So that means not just millions here, but millions there. You're talking about a massive issue in world history that is hanging in the balance right now. Bobby Kennedy in his memoirs, 13 Days, says there was a feeling that the noose was tightening on us all, on Americans, on mankind, and that the bridges to escape were crumbling. So if you're doing a good storytelling thing, which it's sort of hard for me to do because this is not the easiest story to tell. It's a very political one, which doesn't always have the action adventure of a bridge crumbling, some guy leaping across. But that's the, still the mental picture you need to recognize is there. It's, it's, it's in this storyline is that the noose is tightening, the bridge is crumbling. We're not going to make it out of this. Everyone's going to die. No. History.com. Military leaders overwhelmingly urged Kennedy to launch airstrikes against Cuba's air defenses the following morning. Remember the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Remember uh, Kennedy's love for their uh, wisdom? Again, they want to attack. And Kennedy's in a very difficult situation here because if you do nothing, that actually removes your credibility as well because that means they can do more to harm us. It's like, oh, they're, they're just joking. They, they don't really want to push the button. You see, you have to prove that you're ready to respond. You, in, in this, this tension here is so high that you have to be able to act. But Kennedy, at this exact juncture, when all the weight is on him, this is, this is one of my favorite moments in the story, because this is going to steer history right here. The Joint Chiefs, I mean, this is every military leader is like, we have to attack, sir. We have to attack. We are prepared to do so. Here's our plan. And Kennedy has a hunch. He believes that that uh, shooting down of that plane was not something Khrushchev would have ordered that Khrushchev wouldn't have wanted that to happen. Now, he doesn't have any proof of that, but he's thinking it's too dumb of a, a move for Khrushchev, who's a very smart man. Khrushchev, if he's going to do something, would not do that. And everyone's like, you have to attack, sir. We have to answer this. And Kennedy says, we will not. You've got to be kidding. Kennedy, what are you thinking right now? He says, I believe that Khrushchev did not order that, and he is reprimanding that man severely right now and that he is concerned about the effects of it just as I am. So he's gonna to come to the conclusion this wasn't authorized by Khrushchev. History.com says, for Kennedy and Khrushchev, Anderson's death crystallized their realization that the crisis was rapidly spiraling out of their control. We have a quote from Nikolai Khrushchev's son. Listen to this, Sergei Khrushchev, son of the Soviet premier is gonna say, it was at that very moment when Anderson is going to be shot down, not before or after that father felt the situation was slipping out of his control. President Kennedy to his advisors on October 27, 1962, it isn't the first step that concerns me, but both sides escalating to the fourth or fifth step. And we don't go to the sixth because there is no one around to do so. Can't you, oh wow, this is intense guys. And Kennedy's hunch is actually correct. Khrushchev didn't want that. He didn't order that. And so Kennedy's pause is actually going to change the course of history as well. Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, said, you are disturbed over Cuba. This is what he's going to write to uh, Kennedy. You say that this disturbs you because it is 99 miles from, by sea from the coast of the United States of America. 
It's actually 90. But you have placed destructive missile weapons, which you call offensive, in Italy and Turkey, literally next to us. I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States will remove its analogous means from Turkey. And after that, persons entrusted by the United Nations Security Council could inspect on the spot the fulfillment of the pledges made. Khrushchev breaks. Kennedy's hunch is correct. Khrushchev is actually going to make the first appeal. We'll remove the missiles from Cuba if you remove them from Turkey. It's like we have ourselves a potential here. The night of the 27th, Kennedy and Khrushchev reached an agreement. What happened on the 27th? Major Anderson was shot down. And the military leaders wanted an immediate attack on Cuba. Kennedy halts, pauses, says, I don't believe that's what Khrushchev wants. And Khrushchev issues an offer. I mean, literally, I don't, we can't in our skin in 2023 understand the significance of those movements. But that is remarkable. Courtney Tolleson, the historian, says, Major Rudy Anderson's death escalated the crisis significantly. It could have provoked a cascading series of events that if you follow them to their logical conclusions lead to a nuclear World War III. Instead, his death was a jolt to Kennedy and Khrushchev and pushed the crisis to a point where they had to take one of two paths, both of, both of which had clear consequences. Destroy target number 33. Listen to this statement that I'm going to make, guys. The event that saved the world, the death of one man so that hundreds of millions might be spared. Isn't that an amazing statement? This one man's death is actually going to save hundreds of millions. And he's called Target 33. So, I mean, I, I just can't miss it. It's staring me in the face. And then this episode is even called episode 33. And so I'm just freshly blessed by the providence of how God can speak to a Judeo-Christian culture to recognize his faithfulness, even in odd ways like that. History.com. Rudy Anderson posthumously became the first ever recipient of the Air Force Cross. So here's his funeral and uh, a significant life. Uh, I mean, who would have ever guessed that that one man and his willingness to go, it's like, send me, I want to go. He was actually supposed to be off that day. He had two young children, a wife, and he is going to say, I, I must go. Let me go and do this job. And he is going to, in a sense, lay down his life so that Khrushchev and Kennedy could awaken and the rest of the world be saved. Robert McNamara, I'm just going to give sort of a, 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 see if I can at least get us into the skin of what it was like to live in those days. I, I don't know if this is even going to come close to it. Robert McNamara, who was the U.S. Secretary of Defense, says, I thought it was the last Saturday I would ever see. I mean, that's the Secretary of Defense. He had a, sort of an up-close and personal view of what was going on. Joseph Rotblatt, who was a physicist, the most terrifying moment of my life was October 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I did not know all the facts. We have learned only recently how close we were to war, but I knew enough to make me tremble. Maria Darby, who was seven years old at the time, I remember that it felt like everything had gone crazy, just like that. Like, what is happening? The world is ending. Pamela Bruce said, I was in second grade. The kids could feel the tension pouring off adults. In school, we saw films of what, we, what, what to do should the air raid alarms go off. We ridiculously did drills where we hid under our desks as if that was an effective countermeasure. My dad was an Air Force pilot who was required to remain on base at the ready for the duration of the crisis, so mom had to reassure us kids. John Tierney, I recall sitting in front of the television as my family watched Kennedy's address to the nation on the night of the 22nd, and I remember going to school the next day afraid that missiles might blow us all up at some point in the following days. I mean, it'd be hard being an adult with this, but being a, a kid without a lot of perspective of what's going on, without even any details, all you know is that these crazy politicians want to blow up the world. And it's like, what, what are they thinking? Mendel Cooper, this is a very fascinating uh, point. It was frightening. In homes, the news was on constantly on radio and TV. Walking to school, I remember listening, listening for the sound of civil defense sirens and hoping I wouldn't hear them today. And then there was the anger, the rage against the adult world. 
I was maybe going to die because of some stupid political disagreement and I'd never get the chance to live out my life. I can't help thinking, listen to this, this is a very fascinating observation. I can't help thinking in retrospect that this event helped fuel the rage of my generation against the adults and the ensuing student protests and the hippie and anti-war movements just a few years later. And I would say, bingo, right there. That is exactly what you're going to see, is you're gonna see a shift in our country in and through this event, this extremity that our nation is going to come to with the Soviet Union and then you're going to see, you know, multiple assassinations that are going to take place. I mean, three major assassinations in the upcoming years in America. President Kennedy being one of them. You're going to see a backlash that is going to take place. And the younger generation is going to reject the old moorings of our country. They're going to become anti-establishment. Whatever was our system, they're rejecting it. They don't want it anymore. And that, of course, is the hippie movement. And the anti-war movements for Vietnam are going to be so extreme. And so this is going to create the tenor of the rest of the 60s. All right, guys, let's, as we're going through this, let's talk about leadership. The difficulty in saying no. You see, it is really hard when the Joint Chiefs of Staff say you need to, and Kennedy's going to say no. Why? Especially when saying no impacts so much. The weight of decision in war, most cannot bear it. You as a believer have been given grace to actually have a steady mind, a sound mind in the midst of a raging circumstance. The storms that test our leadership are the same storms that strengthen us for victory. The difficulty in saying yes. How about when you actually say, yes, we need to do something? You know how hard that is, especially when saying yes impacts so much? You see, the leader is entrusted with the yeses and the noes. In your own soul, you have yeses and noes. And as you give those, it impacts your life. And it's all the more weighty when you recognize that other people are going to be impacted by that. Don't shrink back. How do you know that you weren't placed in this role for such a time as this? Boy, if I had to have that thought go through my head, because it's hard. It's hard to lead when there is a crushing weight upon you and you want out. As Christians, we don't shrink back. As Christians, we recognize that God has placed us where we're at for such a time as this. That right now, he is going to give us grace. He is going to give us what we need to actually make a decision that pleases him. And if we are eager to know what that decision is that would please him, we will know it. And we will be able to lead in such a way that shapes this world for Jesus. Gravitas. Bigger than the trial, grander than the difficulty, taller than the task. You are called to have this. But it's not just that you need to whip it up. You need to get it from the true source. You see, there's a human version of this, but there's also a divine one. Remember this list by John Lewis Gaddis? He said, recent scholarship confirms the portrait of John F. Kennedy sketched by his brother in 13 days. A remarkably cool, thoughtful, non-hysterical, self-possessed leader, aware of the weight of decision, incisive in his questions, firm in his judgment, always in charge, steering his advisors perseveringly in the direction he wanted to go. A portrait of capital G, gravitas. Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at this list, guys. Remarkably cool. Most of us have never thought of using that uh, John Lewis Gaddis description of Jesus, but just follow me on this. Remarkably cool, which is a funny way of describing Christ, right? Thoughtful, non-hysterical. Instead of self-possessed, I said spirit-possessed leader. Aware of the weight of decision, incisive in his questions, firm in his judgment, always in charge. Even when he's on the cross, can you argue? He's always in charge. Steering his advisors perseveringly in the direction he wanted to go. Listen to this. I'm just going to amp it all up. This is greater than any, any moment of leadership in the history of the world because he is going to do all that, all the while being mocked and ridiculed, all the while being tortured and brutally murdered, all the while bearing the weight of the world's sin. And he's going to be remarkably cool. That he is going to keep a sound mind and he is going to maintain who he is in his commission without erring, without compromise the whole way through. Whatever that is, guys, circle it and say, Lord, I know that I receive everything that is good from you. I would really like that. 
Whatever that is, I need a little dose of that. Maybe a bigger dose of that. We have been commissioned to impact this world for Jesus Christ. We have one shot at this thing called life, and we have everything we need for life and godliness. Let's go after it. 1 Chronicles 28.20, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Father, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. We recognize that apart from you, we are cowardly, we are weak, we are lean. But Lord, you are what we need. You are our solution. You are the capital G for the gravitas in us. Lord, you are everything we need to be able to stand firm in the midst of the trials we face. And I pray, Lord, that we would dig down deep into the well of your treasury and that we would reach out and grab all that you have supplied for us by faith. Lord, you will give us what we need. We just need to do it. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.